Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for Surfacing the Meaning in the Story, a podcast produced by the Mental Health Association of Westchester. I'm Jenna, here with Dustin again today. Hey, Jenna. Good to be here. Hi, Dustin. And as always, we want to ask that you share your feedback with us. We'd love if you would share a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Shari Applebaum is with us today, and we are so grateful to her for sharing her story with us. Shari is someone who has made it her mission to share her grief with others as a way to build connection. She shares how she's always been someone who wanted to help others, but also talks about how walking with others through their grief, showing empathy and compassion to others, helped her own healing to blossom and take place. Shari will be talking about losing her son to suicide, and we know that this can be a difficult topic for some. We want to emphasize that there is always someone to talk to if you or someone you know is experiencing thoughts of suicide. The National Suicide Hotline is available 24-7 and can be reached at 1-800-273-TALK, or that's 1-800-273-8255. In addition, we're linking other resources in the episode description, including for survivors of suicide loss to access peer support, which Shari describes in this episode. So with all that being said, let's get into it. Welcome, Shari. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, thank you for inviting me to be part of the podcast. Yeah, we're very excited to have you here. So I guess let's just start if you could share a bit about your story and kind of where it starts and telling us a bit about Miles and and then we'll go from there. Okay, well, I would have never reached out and try to um, help others without really knowing myself. And knowing myself is really being in touch with someone who doesn't ever wanna sit within my own sense of sorrow and anguish when things happen. And uh, outwardly, I always seek uh, others to help. And so what I always want to do is use my own personal experience to see where it could take me. And where it took me with Miles is to a place where I found healing, solace, and a sense of belonging and community with like-minded people who are going through the same suffering. Mm-hmm. And that kind of suffering is beyond anyone's imagination as a parent. I could never in my wildest of dreams wake up one morning and not have my son. My son, Miles, took his life at the age of 21. He was a junior at Temple University in Philadelphia. Uh, He had been attending there um, to study jazz guitar and to pursue his passion to someday as he would share with my husband and I to someday even be a performer in Carnegie Hall. I mean, that's how Mm. big a picture he wanted for himself. He loved guitar, he loved music, he loved people and he loved performing. 
And what happened with Miles, he had two experiences in his life. Uh, one was when a very good friend of his from his high school track team died suddenly and he attended the wake. And when he came back from the wake, he was really depressed. I mean, I never saw that side of Miles before where he just was so sullen and couldn't really understand, like how could such a young person all of a sudden not be here on earth? Mm -hmm. I mean, this, his friend had so much life, so much to live. And uh, he sunk into this depression for a little while. I didn't think twice about it because I just thought, wow, you know, to lose a friend when you're really young must be really hard. Um, and he was at school at the time. The second episode of his depression occurred uh, while he was a sophomore at uh, Temple University, um, the end of sophomore year where he just showed signs of feeling sad, but yet he pushed through it. And he had an opportunity his junior year to study abroad in Amsterdam at the university, at the Conservatory of Music. And we thought we won the lottery because housing in Amsterdam is so bleak. I mean, there's no housing and we were able to get him a host family where he lived with a mom and dad and their um, two children. And he formed this unique bond with the father, Paul. And they would go out together on weekends. They uh, would have meals together with the family. And he called me right before our, we were supposed to go to Amsterdam to spend the holiday time during Thanksgiving. And two weeks before he called to say that his host dad, he came home from playing his music one afternoon and he was talking to his host dad. He told him he was going out to write some poetry and play his guitar. And when he came back, Paul had a heart attack and Maz wasn't sure if he was alive or not. He tried to resuscitate him. And when the EMS came, uh, they told him that he had, you know, sudden cardiac arrest. And from there, wow. he just spiraled downward. And um, to make, you know, to fast forward, you know, 10 months later, bringing Miles to different psychiatrists, he had a couple of hospitalizations. Uh, he couldn't bring himself up from the depths of depression to become and you know, resilient. And that always made me feel really sad. He tried so very hard. Mm -hmm. He loved life so much and he always had hope, but that heavy, heavy duty depression just took over. And he would say to me, he goes, Ma, it's like cancer. He said, I could imagine what it's like just to feel physically really, really sick from cancer. But what I'm feeling in my head feels like even worse. Yeah. And uh, he died um, in September of 2014. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. And I know how, how hard it must be to kind of talk about it as you do in different, in different areas and kind of go through that again. But I appreciate how you kind of, it, it really shows that you are trying to tell the story from his perspective too, of what he was going through at the time and what you imagine that was like for him. And I, I want to shift for a minute just to what that was like for you as a mom to, and you touched on it a little, but to, to see how, how sad he was and how difficult of a time he was having to, to move past that or through the sadness. Mm-hmm. 
Well, uh, as a mom, we always try to fix things. Uh, mm-hmm. We're the nurturers. We're the ones who want to just say, okay, they're stuck. A, step B, C, and D, and then you'll be okay. And as much as I gave Miles the encouragement that we will get help, we'll find a new doctor, we'll find a new therapist, new medication. Um, As a mom, it was incredibly frustrating, but I didn't want to share with Miles my frustration because I always Mm -hmm. believe in hope and I wanted to give Miles the hope too that we will find a medication that worked and he would be okay and mm-hmm. just keep trying never to give up. Cause that's my motto. I always look at the glass half full and I try to instill that in him as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was really painful and difficult for me. And miles too, uh, to the very end, he never gave up hope. Mm-hmm. And that's why it was so difficult because he disguised the, the depth of his depression and pain because we were all shocked when he did take his life. Right. But he, he planned out the whole thing we later found out. Mm-hmm. And so like in the very beginning of this, you kind of talked about how you always have wanted to kind of take your experiences and your grief and, and help others from those experiences. Was mm-hmm. that something that you already kind of had within you prior to um, what happened with Miles? Like, were there other situations like that? Or, w- or was this really the, the situation that instilled that in you? No, I was always like that. I could just remember, you know, at 16 years old, being a lifeguard at camp and, uh, you know, diving into the pool because there was a woman who was looked like she was drowning. And I just, you know, remembered what I learned in CPR and, you know, say, you know, brought her back to the edge of the pool. But even more something uh, that was more significant to me, my uh, freshman year when I was in social work school, I my, uh, my field work was at uh, Manhattan State Psychiatric Hospital on Wards Island. And there was a young woman who hadn't left the state hospital in 20 years to see a relative. And I remember taking her to see her aunt in Brooklyn and going through like four subways just so she would have that afternoon to see a living relative. And to me, that meant everything because I saw how happy that made her. And um, it's just in me to be an empathetic and compassionate person to others. And it's my way of healing. And uh, so I recall when Miles had passed away, I reached out to the Mental Health Association of Westchester to see what I could do and where there could be a place to take that pain and anguish that I was feeling and to be able to help others. And that's where everything blossomed for me and the healing Mm -hmm. started to take place. So what got you to that turning point, do you think? And how long was that after... Miles had died and like, was there something that shifted within you at that time that made you pick up the phone or what was it at that time that did that? Well, I, yeah, I found something that my mom wrote to me um, and I want to read it. Uh, My mom has been a very important role model for me. We all, you know, have different mentors in our lives, people who uh, we rise above when we feel like we're shut down. So my mother is a very important role model. 
And when Miles died, it was only um, a year later when I said to him, Mom, what is resilience? What does it mean? And I found this letter I just want to uh, read. And she wrote, to me, resilience is an old tree still standing for over 150 years in spite of lovers carvings on its trunk and pesticides blowing in its face throughout the seasons. A mother who sits by the bedside of a child with a grave illness giving comfort. A soldier comes back from the wars with mind and body so damaged but eventually finds stability through his perseverance. Women, men, and children who continue to work, play, and study regardless of rockets being shot at them and not knowing when they will be knifed in the back. My resilience is attempting to be strong, acknowledging the loss of my grandchild, Miles, and being there for my family and friends with encouragement and kind words. Realizing the fact that I am aging, but still wanna be part of the parade of life by going, doing, participating, and expressing compassion to others through kind words, regardless of adversity in my life. As Dylan Thomas wrote, do not go gently, into the good night, rage, rage against the dying of the light. So my mom propelled me, you know, she also is a special education retired teacher. And she just said, when you give to others, there's, you forget about yourself. You remember why you're giving. And if you give to others to heal, it's gonna be very gratifying. And I found it to be very true. Wow, that's interesting, right? Because you you always had that sense of compassion and empathy within you. And then you had this experience that brought about um, a grief. It sounds like one that you had, hadn't known before. And that allowed you to connect and empathize with people in an even more powerful way through that shared experience. Yes. Okay. So did you believe her when she said that to you initially? I did. I mm-hmm. did. I mean, I, the pain that I was feeling was so raw at the time mm-hmm. uh, that I couldn't imagine that being involved with other people, it was very frightening to me. I was afraid mm-hmm. to hear from other mothers. What might that be like to talk about it openly, yeah. to hear someone else's pain? And I was very lucky to meet a woman by the name of Rebecca Walkley. And she's a therapist in um, Northern Westchester. And she lost a brother, I believe, to suicide. And um, I joined her support group. But it was so helpful because there were seven moms in the support group. And we all had seven sons who we lost to suicide. So how you can't get any more, you know, like, like-minded than that. I mean... <laughs> You know, we all Lots have of connection moms, there. <laughs> we moms, so we all experienced the same walk. We all walk the same walk. And I felt that that was very helpful too. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was a big part of your healing journey then just having that connection with people who could understand what that experience was like. Yeah. And mm-hmm. give um, comfort and support. Yeah, absolutely. And, right. You yeah. give and you get, it's that it's- mutual kind of help. Mm-hmm. And I think the hardest thing that happens to a person is that when the grief is so strong and the sorrow is so strong, it's human nature that we tend to isolate and 
we tend to go inward. But I find that when you go outward and you talk to people and you open up and you share and you become transparent, everyone has a grief story. None of us live life unscathed by not having gone through grief. Now, it's not saying that everyone who I talk to will have it as severe as losing a child to suicide, but we all have some sort of grief that we've gone through where we could mm -hmm. um, be sensitive and caring and kind to somebody else. Yeah. So for you, it was about using your specific grief to bring comfort to, to others. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you've done more than just bring comfort to others. Also, you've really shown a light on how important it is to talk about suicide and talk about it openly and share. And um, tell us about some of some of the things that you've done. So um, one thing that I want to share is that Miles attended uh, Lagan Music School in Elmsford, and that's where he first ignited his passion to study and be trained by Roseanne Lana and Charlie Lagans and a number of incredible, incredible musicians. And he fell in love with the guitar. And after Miles died, uh, I said, wow, I want to do something for Miles's legacy. And my family set up the uh, Miles Applebaum Music High School Scholarship Fund, and that is to award need-based scholarships to students in high schools where they want to go to a music school, but they can't afford to go. And the scholarships um, have given so far one, two, three, about five students the opportunity to study at Lagan. And it's such a thrill to be in touch with some of the students still who are in college and who are thriving and enjoying and loving music. So that's been very rewarding. Absolutely. And I, I remember going to the concert, the music for miles that you did. What year was that? 2018? Well, the first one is in, was in 2016 at the Capitol theater. Okay. With the group lettuce, which was a lot of fun. And then the second year, and we joined together with a Jed, Jed foundation and part of the proceeds went to Jed foundation for mental health. And then the second year, it was a fabulous opportunity to join hands with the Mental Health Association of Westchester. And that was at the Chappaqua Performing Arts Center. It was and such a powerful night. It really was. So that night was living proof. And it was a multimedia uh, performance by people from all walks of life who have shared how they overcome adversity. Uh, there was a guitar player who stuttered, and when he spoke, you heard that he was a stutterer, but as soon as he started playing the guitar, his words flowed, and it was so beautiful. And another um, very, very close friend of my Miles uh, spoke about how she does not let her bipolar get in the way of her becoming a beautiful artist, and she spoke as well. I'm trying to remember, uh, you had someone from MHA Westchester who spoke as well from one of your recovery programs. Yeah, I know. I just, I, I think back on that and it was the stories that people told and it was the talent. I mean, it just blew me away. It really didn't. It was, it was such a inspiring evening for, I think, people to remember and recognize that never look at someone who 
has this talent or, you know, does something really well and assume that, oh, they don't, there's, you know, they don't know what, what pain or grief is, or they must have it all, you know, figured out because it was so, so powerful to hear them talk about, no, this is, this is my therapy. This is what I do to, you know, to cope with, with what I'm going through and that they do it so beautifully. And um, it was, it was just really uplifting. I really, I'll never forget that evening. Yes. And how one overcomes adversity and moves forward. Yeah. And it was also a display of that for you too. And just watching how much heart and soul you poured into it in order to honor miles as well. Yes. And so it was really inspiring to watch that part of it also. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I guess I, I want to kind of shift to back to that turning point a little bit, right? You talked about your mom wrote you this letter. She said, this is how you're going to, this is how you're going to, you know, move through your grief. This is how you're going to um, develop resilience. And you said, okay, I'm going to do it. And you made that call. So at what point did you realize this is working? Uh, I felt that it was working at different points of the past seven years because grief is a process and we live through grief forever i don't believe that at any time all of a sudden i'm not feeling the loss anymore right of losing somebody who meant the world to me so i give myself permission to stop sometimes and to pause and not to go there mm -hmm. because going there could be too painful. Mm -hmm. And the example, I was just so open and transparent when uh, the Mental Health Association of Westchester created this wonderful program, which was my uh, way of helping others who have lost loved ones to suicide. And I was, a, you know, through a grant that you wrote, um, I was able to help others uh, who I saw to listen to their grief story of losing a loved one to suicide and to be there as a peer to peer. Mm -hmm. And when I found that it was too much, it was okay to say, I need to have this little break now and then continue again when I feel that I could be good. Because mm -hmm. I think what we do in life sometimes is that we sometimes keep going, 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 going without looking at sometimes we just need to stop and pause and say, how is this affecting us physically, mentally, and emotionally? Mm -hmm. And is it counterintuitive? I needed to take care of myself. I needed to go into therapy. Mm -hmm. I was helping everybody else, but I didn't have my own therapist and I needed to kind of like grieve for miles. Mm -hmm. That's such an important reminder too, because you, you took that step and said, okay, I want to start creating something from this pain and grief that is good, but it doesn't mean the pain and grief is going to go away. They coexist and they dance together. And sometimes one is mm -hmm. going to overtake the other and that's okay. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that just because you're doing something good from this terrible thing that it doesn't hurt anymore. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And what I learned too, is that we could only grieve for one person at a time. 
Uh, the year that I lost Miles in 2014, I lost three very, very close girlfriends in the end of 2014 and two more in 2015 from different, from cancer, uh, two of them, and then a sudden heart attack. And these girlfriends were young. I mean, they were only in their fifties and, um, you know, I realize the fragility of life that just because you have a tremendous loss as what I had with miles, it doesn't mean that other losses won't happen. Life keeps going and the suffering keeps going, but we take a look at what we do have and not what we don't have. And we find kindness, compassion, love and support from others. And that's what's really getting me through all the different losses that I've had. Mm -hmm. Right. The acceptance of the pain. Yeah. And then also the hope that you don't have to stay there all the time and that you can do things that are going to be powerful and give you a sense of purpose and, and that, that that's so helpful to you in your process. Mm -hmm. It's perfectly okay to say, I'm not okay. And to get help when I need the help, that's just the other part too. Cause sometimes yep. we just avoid getting the help. We're like, okay, yeah. I'll, wait, you know, I'll wait another day. And I think you like what you said. It's perfect is like grief is a process, right? It doesn't, you know, it doesn't tail off into nothing. And someday you wake up and then all of a sudden you're just okay with this. It's just, it's a process. And I think part of that process is days and times where you don't feel good about it. And you just, you accept that. And then you, you know, work through those and that it's completely okay to not be okay sometimes with that. And that's, that's part of the process for, you know, so many people. Um, so it was, it was really, it's nice to, you know, it's a perfect way of putting it is that it is a process. Yes. And I can't help but think about how you started this whole thing by saying, I had to know myself, right? And, and imagine if you didn't, because I think sometimes people get into, okay, well, here's now I have this purpose and this calling of this thing I'm going to do because of what I went through, but that it's also okay to take a step back from that sometimes too, and know yourself well enough to say when it's help, when it's helping and when it's not. Exactly. I'm wondering if, um, if you noticed any shifts in terms of how you kind of made meaning from your experiences and maybe even things that happened before, um, before Miles died, but how they sort of come together to create a narrative about how you are going to live your life, what you're going to do. And if you notice sort of any shifts in those stories you told yourself before, after, and then sort of in the seven years since. You know, uh, having disappoint, you know, different disappointments in life. Uh, I use three words a lot. I'm good enough. And I think saying those words to myself are important that things have happened to me over the past years, which have uh, created the person who I am, but also that, you know, the resilience part that we spoke about earlier, that we just keep pushing through. And 
the rumination sometimes that we have in our heads and these thoughts, we get caught up with the past and we get stuck in our past so much of what we could have done differently. If only we could have done it. How did we let it happen? I mean, these are just all thoughts and that what I learned through um, my girlfriends who are, you know, uh, all these, they decided to, um, you know, become yoga certified instructors and they're mm-hmm. always inviting me is that you're living in the present, you yeah. know, so much of what's really important is just the here and now and to be present and that to go back. And also we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So yeah. that's important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the only kind of being able to embrace those painful memories in the sense that there comes a time where we can either gain, I don't know, new insights from them or shift the way we think about those things so that you're reflecting on those memories doesn't bring the thought of I'm not good enough that you can have those memories, embrace the pain and say, I am good enough. Mm-hmm. Thank you for, for sharing that. That's, it's a powerful transformation. <laughs> so I have uh, something that, you know, I share sometimes um, when I read it, I share it with other people and, you know, it's like, it's a quote. And if you want light to come into your life, you need to stand where it's shining. And it's by Guy Finley, who's an American writer and philosopher. And then I want to add, there are some who bring a light so great that even after they are gone, the light remains. And, you know, I speak to people about when they lose loved ones, they sometimes say, well, I just don't know where that person is, or I can't find that sense of being with a person. But it's like remembering how to honor someone who is no longer with us, that they are with us all the time, their light, their being, you know, what reminded us of them as making us happy, you know, when they laughed, especially Miles, he laughed a lot, he smiled a lot, you know, his music filled the house. And those are all beautiful things. Mm -hmm. And those are light to you. Yes, exactly. I couldn't help but notice when you were talking about the light, and I know people listening are not going to see this, but there's just light shining on you right now. Yeah. So interesting. The windows. Yeah. yeah. The sun is just shining in. So I love that imagery. Yeah. Can you read that one more time? Okay. If you want light to come into your life, you need to stand where it's shining. There are some who bring a light so great that even after they are gone, the light remains. So it sounds almost like what you're saying is th- that Miles left this light, you know, like he left it behind because it was so bright. And now when you need that, that's where you go stand in, in his light. Absolutely. That's very cool. Like mm-hmm. his essence, his being, yeah. his kindness, his compassion. I mean, that could be part of why I'm always wanting to be there for somebody else. And uh, my family sometimes gets upset with me. They're like, you're always doing things for other people. You never put yourself first. And I start to think, you're right. Why do I do this? And it just reminds me so much of Miles. That's how he was as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also think there's, there's 
and it is important. Self-care is so, so important, but for some people doing for others is a form of self-care as long as you don't lose yourself in the process. So, uh, you know, that may be the way that you, that you do that and that you care for yourself also. Yeah. And, you know, you were talking a little bit before about obstacles and there's a book uh, by Harold Kushner, why bad things happen to good people, whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I broke my leg two years ago and then I just broke my arm on New Year's day. And, you know, it's been really hard having broken bones over the past two years and, you know, trying to make some sense of how could this happen? Like, it's just so, you know, one happened on a ski slope and the other one happened on black ice. Now there are concrete reasons why, (laughs) but I also feel that, there's more to it that we learn lessons and we learn a lot from things that happen to us. And so, you know, the silver lining for me was while this was happening this time, I was doing a lot of writing um, and the writing is very therapeutic. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's so much that we can't control over our lives, but when I write, I find it to be very, calming and relaxing and it takes my mind off of what's happening and yeah Yeah, that's great it it just gives you that opportunity to create a narrative and reflect on whatever it is that you're experiencing in that moment Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is there anything from that any insights or things that have come through that writing that you've learned anew well I wrote a lot about grief and Mm -hmm. Um, losing miles. And when I write it on paper, it's not as painful anymore. When I write the narrative, I think it's really important. Sometimes people have uh, a vision in their head about how something was and it's very frightening and there's a lot of self-blame. And for many years, I questioned myself and I said, what kind of a mother am I to allow my son to take his life? I put it on myself. Like there must've been something that I did to cause him to take his life. And I believed it and no one else believed it, but me, Mm -hmm. but the writing helped to really see on paper, the struggles that my son had. And there were real struggles that he went through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's such a common experience for people. And I'm sure you know this from talking to other people who have lost someone to suicide, but really a unique aspect of that grief is, is that just that those, those thoughts and feelings of guilt or blame. Um, So it's, it's great that you're able to kind of reflect on that now and see it in a different way. Yeah. And my family would worry about me too, you know, to wonder if something would happen to me. Sure. Because of this tremendous loss, like, are you going to hurt yourself, mom? Mm-hmm. Went through so much pain, and I would never hurt myself because I feel that life is something that's so precious. That my message to other people out there is: if you're in pain, or if you're feeling despair, that there's always somebody out there to help you mm-hmm. and to get the help that you need. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. And we'll share some ways that you can do that at the the end of the podcast as well. Yeah. And, you know, I also, uh, I remember not too long ago, 
uh, you know, it seems like yesterday when I was helping out at MHA of Westchester, there is an article in one of your newsletters that I contributed to, and it was about how do we ask someone how they're doing and how do we say where help is most needed? Because I think even today, you know, seven, it will be seven years in September, people have a really hard time talking about suicide. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget after Miles died, a neighbor of mine uh, was at the supermarket where I happened to have been walking through the aisle and he gave me eye contact and took his cart and quickly went down the aisle. And I said, wow, was it something I said? And then later on, he met up with me in the um, cashier line and I looked at him again. He looked me in the eye. He said, I just did not know what to say. And I said, sometimes there's nothing to say except I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. But people just have a really hard time. They're afraid of what they'll say might make it worse. Mm-hmm. Right. You're right. So often when you're going through something painful, that's the hardest part is that you want, you need people, you need connection, you need people to be around you and you don't necessarily even need them to say anything, just know that they're there and that they will listen and that what you're going to say is important to them. So that's also a good reminder too, for people who might be listening, who are trying to support someone. Is there any advice you would give on things that, you know, maybe say or do this, but don't say or do that? I think being a really good listener is the best advice you could give anyone who's going through grief Mm -hmm. and to allow them to take the lead and to just be there to listen because we all want to be fixer uppers, Mm -hmm. want to, you know, do whatever we can to make it better. But all we want is just someone to lean in and to let us lean on their shoulder but not necessarily give us advice. Yeah, that's absolutely. Yeah. And even when you know people are doing it with a good intention or a good heart, it's still like, no, just listen, (laughs) please. (laughs) Is there anything else that you would like to share with us or that you think is important to say before we wrap up? Uh, Just that we're going through, you know, very, you know, with the pandemic, we're going through really, really hard times. And when people are grieving, uh, especially during losing loved ones to COVID, I think with suicide on top of that, for people who have lost loved ones to suicide, it adds another layer. Um, And that it could be really beyond hard, but just to always reach out and to know that there are places like the Mental Health Association of Westchester and different helplines to call and to get the help they need. Because mm-hmm. I'm a big proponent on, you know, reaching out to a friend, reaching out to a relative, reaching out to a place to get help. Mm-hmm. And I think also it's so important too to be aware of the people in your life. And if you notice someone struggling and they, they're not able to reach out at the moment, you know, to help them to, to reach out or make that call with them or, you know, let them know that you're there is also really important right now. Mm -hmm. And to also like give yourself permission because sometimes we're also surrounded by 
people where it just might, might be too stressful for us. I know mm -hmm. the vaccine uh, people are scrambling to get vaccinations and uh, there's such a shortage of vaccinations. It could be very stressful for, you know, people who can't get to the vaccination who need one. And um, just to really eliminate yourself from the conversation and somehow, somehow say, I really don't want to talk about this right now because it could get very stressful as well. Yeah. Knowing your limits is yes. really important. Yeah. I, I can't talk about that right now and that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Whatever it is, whether it's the vaccine or anything else. <laughs> yes. Okay. So um, good reminders. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. Well, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story with us and just how you have walked through this with such, um, such grace and compassion and self-awareness and, so helpful, I think, to other people to hear as an example of, you know, what this could, what this could look like and that there's hope and it doesn't mean that everything's all better and it doesn't mean that you're not sad. It just means that there's hope in moving forward. Yes. And I do believe two words that I always have in my vocabulary, which is very strong is love and kindness. As long as you could give love and kindness you will get it back in return. And I think that's what everyone needs. They really need connection right now to uh, have that in their lives, mm -hmm. to give it and to receive. Loving kindness. Yes. Thank you, Shari. Thank you. This is such an honor to be part of this and thank you for inviting me. Before you give that love to